2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, your host today. Today, we will be talking with the authors of Presumed Incompetent Two, Race, Class, Power, and Resistance of Women in Academia. And I'm joined by two of the co-editors of that book, Yolanda flores Nieman and Gabriela Gutierrez-Imus. Welcome, ladies. Thank, thank you for yeah. having us. Um I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Yolanda, can we begin with you?
0: Sure. Uh thank you for asking that question. Uh my uh my background uh is is part of is a huge part of of how this book uh came to be in terms of my contributions to the book. You know, we all Function from the lenses through which we are used to seeing the world, and my lens on the world was shaped as a very uh, as a very young child, and and then it continued to be shaped throughout my professional career. So I'm a Mexican American woman. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm the oldest of seven children. Uh, and neither one of my parents. Uh, my dad went uh, to th- got to third grade, and then his family picked cotton in the cotton fields of Texas. And my mother uh, made it to seventh grade and her family did all kinds of work. And, you know, the, she comes from a big family and they did things like, you know, clean movie theaters, hotel rooms and and, and whatnot. Uh, so uh, very, very uh, uh, non-college educated. Even I was the first person to graduate from high school in the family. Uh, and as I said, I'm the oldest of seven. And when I was in first grade. Uh, uh, My sister died, Uh, one of my younger sisters died, and she died from poverty. Um, At that time, if you went to the hospital uh, and you didn't have money, you were turned away. Uh, My mother took, uh, with the help of a neighbor, took uh, my sister to the hospital. And was turned away twice and the third time they took her but she was already in a coma and she was dead by morning and all it was was a fever and which could have been treated uh, so it wasn't like a major disease that kills people uh, she just needed some basic medical help that my mother could not provide uh, so that immediately shaped my lens and so we we were a family that grew up in, in really abject poverty uh, we moved around a lot. Uh, my first few houses were out, had outdoor toilets, um, outhouses. Uh, w- it was not uncommon for us to go a couple of days with no food. Uh, we we were in a lot of poverty, so that shaped. So that the socioeconomic status it became part of my DNA, and then race became part of my DNA when I started school. So. Uh, in San Antonio, people think that San Antonio is a very liberal place and, um, you know, a lot of Mexican-Americans there, now a lot of Mexicans there too, Mexican nationals. But when I was growing up, um, I actually went to uh, elementary schools that had separate drinking fountains for colored and white. And uh, I didn't know, uh, I knew how to read before I started school, Just I, I just have good uh, book smart genes, I guess. Uh, nobody knows how that happened, but I, I didn't know what the word colored meant. I knew I was Mexican American, but I read the word colored and we again, we, we moved around a lot cause I, we got evicted a lot because we couldn't pay rent and I drank from the wrong water fountain, not knowing what it meant. I just picked the one closest to me and I, I got beaten up severely by the other kids for drinking from the wrong fountain. And, uh, Kids of all races beat me up. You know, the the white girls beat me up because I had no business drinking from the white fountain. The black girls beat me up because that I think I was better than them? The same thing with the Mexican girls. They beat me up like, you know, don't you know that you think you're better than us? You're supposed to drink from the other fountain. So all of this became, I think it's just, became part of my DNA at such a young age and shaped the lens through which I see the world. And, and in those days, the death of my sister became extremely important for school because in those days, uh, there was, and still happens today, there was major segregation. So the white kids in San Antonio were put in classes where they were, uh, there were college prep classes, uh, and uh, the Mexican and black kids were put in vocational ed classes. So even though I could read it uh, before I started school, I was in those vocational ed classes. Well, when my sister died, my family was in such trauma. And then other things happened to my mother that involved medical stuff. Um, and uh, the, uh, uh, so I wasn't sent to school period for, uh, I mean, they just didn't, they stopped sending me to school for a long time as the family was dealing with the trauma. And in those days, you actually had to go to school a certain number of days uh, or you would not pass to the next level. So I was retained in first grade for not going to school enough days to pass. Now, so clearly I was way ahead of everybody before I even started. Uh, And then Now it was really ahead because I was repeating first grade. So the teachers, because I bugged them so much, they gave me extra books. Uh, I helped people with their homework. So I was always, you know, helping people. Uh, I became a teacher uh, quickly. Uh, And by the time I was uh, at the end of third grade, the teachers finally got together and decided that I should be in the college bound classes. So. I got moved, and from then on, I was in college-bound classes. But I was almost always the only person in those classes who was not white, and it was always being mentioned because I made good grades. Oh, Yolanda, the Mexican girl in our class, made an A- made all A's. What's the matter with the rest of you? You can't keep up with the Mexican. Uh, so that that what uh, I ended up in college and graduate school start studying tokenism. And frankly, it didn't click why I was attracted to the topic of tokenism, which has to do with being either the only one or one of only a few people of your kind uh, with your visible identity in a given situation. And visible identities that I'm talking about are race, ethnicity, and our sex. Um, those are things that people can see, of uh, can identify about us, or at least they think they can. Um so that happened to me beginning in elementary school, and it happened all through high school and then in college and then in my professional career as a, as a professor. So that all of that, I say, because it's the, the DNA uh, that is that became a part of me is in presumed incompetence. Uh, all those things that happen when you're poor, when you're tokenized, uh, when you're, tokenized, uh, when you're uh, the other, uh, and the discrimination that happens, and overt and covert, and the denial of the discrimination that happens, all of this you know, is embedded in, in the narratives that uh, are in these books, because they are experienced, these are narratives, these are experiences that other people have, too. Uh, when uh, they are um, uh, not upper middle class white women in academia. And, and even the, those women and in some fields uh, get discriminated against just because they're women. So uh, that's, I, I'll leave it there. Uh, again, just uh, by the time I got to high school, there were, there were other Mex, uh, Mexican Americans in my class, but there were almost always boys so there was, uh, I, I, I can identify a couple of boys that were all of my classes who are Mexican American. One became a lawyer, one became a doctor and I became a professor. Um, But that was always the case. And then uh, lo and behold, I become an assistant professor. And here we start all over again. But the higher I went, um, the worse the discrimination and the tokenization became. Um, So I was I'm a a tenured full professor, but in addition to that, I spent 16 years in administration going from all the ranks, department chair, uh, dean, vice provost, senior vice provost for academic affairs. Um, And the higher I went, the worse things became because uh, the academic world is not accustomed to seeing Mexican-American women in leadership positions. Uh, So all of that is, is part of the, of the work that I, I do on, I, I write on the psychology of tokenism for women in academia, uh, especially women of color faculty in academia. And, and I study stereotypes as well. So again, uh, I, I would not have known when I was eight years old that my career had been shaped at that point, uh, because of the things that were happening to me, uh, just, uh, and then continue to happen throughout my development. So that's that's a little bit about who I am.
2: Thank you for sharing all of that, Yolanda. Uh, Gabriella, will you tell us a bit about
1: yourself? Of course. I'm sitting here. Um, I've known Yolanda for almost 20 years. And um, she also invited me when she was an administrator to her university, I guess 15 years ago or a little bit more, and treated me like a human being, (laughs) like a professor with a PhD from Stanford. And I was mesmerized. Um, So I I do have to add that to her profile. I was also sitting here and thinking how we haven't talked about how many things we have in common, Yolanda, like uh, losing um, my mother lost. my brother my young brother precisely because she couldn't he couldn't get a surgery um and he died as a baby also in texas um so we have we just have so many things in common uh, when you come from poverty and even though i grew up in california there's a lot of similarities with yolanda's life i grew up as a migrant farm workers child I have an accent, although American-born, because in the winters, my parents could not afford to pay the rent, so we would go to Mexico. Um, I uh, wanted to, uh, early on, I heard about uh, tenure. The first time I heard the word tenure was in undergrad, um, and that was, because one of my professors at Occidental College, where I got my BA, did not get tenure and committed suicide. Um, So that marked me. And then in graduate school at Stanford, the same thing with another professor. Uh, I wanted to, when I got to uh, the academy, I wanted to make sure that there was... uh, some type of instruction manual (laughs) that um, allowed working class people and people of color to know what to do because everything was very, um, the goals, you know, would move when you would almost reach them. Um, And there was nothing that was really palpable. How many books do you need uh, to get tenure? Well, that was not very clear, in most institutions because, of course, it's, it's left like that. So um, I wanted to create a manual. So we'll go back to that topic of presumed incompetent and, and where that came from, I think, um, a little later. Uh, about me, I went to college thanks to an incredible man, my high school counselor, who sent um, the migrant children... Uh, that he met that were hardworking, to uh, Ivy Leagues. He, con- he spent his entire career, he was not married, uh, and he was my high school counselor and sent us off to schools. A lot of these people became, as Yolanda said, politicians, you know, lawyers, the people that were, you know, given attention in college. Um that's why I went to college. I then worked as a, after college as a social worker. Uh, I worked as a teacher. I have a teaching credential. For many years, I worked as a, a, a teacher, junior high, high school, community college, uh, an administrator. And then I got my PhD. And one thinks that, you know, you you've acquired this milestones in your life um, it's really amazing that anybody who comes uh, from such dire poverty um, is able to do uh, and you don't know that unless you're 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 there right unless you live this that these goals are almost unsurmountable barriers for Um, a person coming from the working class to become a professor with a PhD and you think I've made it and then you get to the academy and there's six more years where people will be observing you but you don't really know what because your parents are not professors um, what is good you know what what you're doing well and what you're not um, you know that you're being looked at. You know about your contributions, uh, which lately have been called um, intangible worths by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, but you also know that there's all these filters of indifference. That's my term, what I call these filters of indifference, all these layers um, where the targets are moved and you don't know exactly uh, why people are ignoring what you're doing. Um, I've, I was a social worker. I went and lived all over the world. Uh, I represented the United States as a poet. I'm also a poet, so my most important subjectivity in India in 2011. And I'm a literary critic and a cultural worker. Uh, and I chose to focus my work, to highlight the work of major, major U.S. Latinx writers, not yet in the American canon, to situate them there. I have two books with University of Arizona Press, um, one on Elena Maria Viramontes, uh, who uh, works uh, at Cornell, and Norma Cantu, At Trinity in San Antonio, and I work on highlighting the incredible work of these writers. I just finished two anthologies, one to be published in Spain by Polivea Press, and another one by San Diego University Press, of the writings of uh, major Chicano, Latino writers who are not highlighted um, in our mainstream canon. And... Um so that's really my focus. Um, um I think I'll stop there. There's so much more to say, but um uh, that's really a little bit of about me.
2: Thank you for sharing that, Gabriella. Um I appreciate how much about both of yourselves that you shared. Um the essays in the book, the women over and over were very brave about sharing things about themselves uh, candidly, things that were difficult to share. And I appreciate how you opened by doing that so um, so well. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to ask you first about the book that preceded the one we're talking about today. We're gathered today to talk about Presumed Incompetent Two. But before there was presumed incompetent, too, there was presumed incompetent. And I wonder if you could take us back to when you realized you needed or wanted to write presumed incompetent. Can you tell us what sparked that book?
1: Gabriela, why don't you start? Okay. <laughs> As I mentioned previously, um, I just, that's how I felt. That was. Um, um oftentimes, uh, that I had to do three times the work of other people, um, I remember myself uh, nursing my child in my office. He was sick on that day, and of course, it was not good to bring your children, but I had to. I knew nobody else in the city that I was working in. And um and I still remember the admin assistant. Asking one of my colleagues who had started with me, um, and we were both assistant professors, but he was white. And uh, asking him if she could make a poster for him for his uh, upcoming uh, event. And there I was, I was nursing my son, you know, he was on my breast and I was correcting papers, and I was preparing for classes, and I was also working on uh, my poster because I was bringing a lot of people in, um, but nobody was asking to help me. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, this is not right. Um, How is it that his work and his... um, contributions and events are so much more important than mine. And that's one of the things that lit the light in my brain. There was also another book uh, that never came out, which was, um, um, I think it was called Ingrates at the Gate. And that book also made me think about My professors that did not get tenure and what tenure was, um, and how what we really highlight in the introduction to presumed incompetent is that universities were not really made for working class people or people of color, particularly not for women. They were made to educate the upper class. And I realized that there needed to be more knowledge about the subtleties, and no, we did not just want a testimonial or a lamenting <laughs> a book. We wanted something that was proactive, and this is Yolanda. Uh, so then I met other people and recruited them to um, work with me um, because I, know, I knew Yolanda was an administrator. Um, we recruited uh, other people like Angela Harris, uh, Carmen, was talking to me throughout this whole time about what we were going to do but everybody was in a different discipline and we wanted to make sure that we had chapter 30 which is what makes presuming competent one invaluable chapter 30 is a chapter where we give where we give recommendations to the administrators on how to tenure people right this is what you do um, you make things very clear for them. Uh, it's it's a whole series of recommendations. Um, you mentor them. That's what really what we were saying, because it's really because of lack of mentorship that a lot of people don't get tenure. So we were doing prevention in Chapter 30. We also gathered. Yolanda did a lot of. Uh, this work, gathering the best information we had from the over 40 contributors to Presumed Incompetent One, their advice. Right? So that's chapter 30 for both the administrators, the deans, um, the chairs, and also for the candidate to tenure. This is how you get tenure. You concentrate, you publish. Um, You don't take things personally. Um, You um, go on, you make, uh, you create all these uh, connections with different types of allies um, so that they looked at each of the areas, scholarship, um, teaching, um, and of course, uh, uh, service, which a lot of us, Um, You know, people of color, especially women, we are in this um, uh, place where everybody asks us to do service, right? We're at the threshold of service, women of color are, and we're asked at every level to do service, whether it be to review files after we get tenure for other universities, Um, to mentor others, our students of color and poor students alike, not just students of color, come to us. So this chapter 30 gives advice in every area, and that is what makes presumed incompetent one, aside from all the incredible stories, um, invaluable. And I'll let Yolanda add to that.
0: Thank you, Uh, Gabriella. Yes, so I was department chair at Washington State University, and I I get an email from uh, this person named Gabriela guterres Simuz, and she said, I just finished reading your article, The Making of a Token, and I'd like to speak with you because I think I'm having some of the same experiences that, that you described. So I called her, and we had this long conversation, and yes, we had been sharing a lot of the same experiences. So in my first position... Uh, which was assistant professor at the University of Houston in the psychology department. Uh, I experienced tremendous racism and sexism. And that's where I got my PhD. And they asked me to stay. But unbeknownst to me, originally, the university was under great pressure from some black and, and Latinx legislators, because the department was pretty much all white, of about 35 faculty. So when I was hired, the, the year I was hired, I was the only person of color in the department. And they weren't used to having a person of color. I mean, and there was a lot of resentment. So I experienced some horrible things and, mm-hmm. and, and I, uh, I wrote about it in the making of a token. And so uh, and we, we actually republished that in in the uh, in presumed incompetent, uh, the first one. Uh, because it resonated with so many people, so I was one of the first people to talk about what it's like to be a, a woman of color in academia and write about it. So it it, it hit a nerve. Well, it's it's still one of my most cited articles.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so that so Gabriella had this idea about you know well it's not just the two of us. She said I know lots of people who are going through these things. And I said well I know people too. So uh, we decided to 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 write the book and put out a call. And my goodness, uh, what we got back uh, was uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, we just uh, we we accepted um, only about a third of the articles that we got, yes. probably less than that, less than a third, yeah, less than a third, maybe a fourth of the articles we got yeah. because we just put out this innocent call, and and people resonated with it, and it was like, wow. So here's one reason I'm going to give you some data, uh, because one of the reasons that people resonated with this is is that that book was published in 2012. But today, things really haven't changed that much with regard to the presence of people of color in the academic world. So among faculty, uh, about 78 percent of faculty in academia are white. And that's pretty much, pretty evenly split between males and females. So among, uh, let's say, so uh, people who are only about 6% of faculty are Black, only about 4.5% are Latinx, Uh, Asians are a little bit better at about 10%, uh, 10, 11%. And in fact, uh, Alaska Natives are hardly, uh, there There's so few of them, they're they're, they're less than 0.5%. There are more uh, people from other countries who are faculty members in the United States of America than there are people of domestic people of color who were raised in the United States of America.
1: That's very important.
0: That's (laughs) very important. So, so the white establishment, the white uh, people in power, see are more comfortable hiring people from. Uh, Iran or uh, Britain or Germany or Pakistan uh, than they are hiring uh, a Black American or a Mexican American
1: uh, or India or the Caribbean. Yes, a lot of people Indian. from India. A lot
0: of the. Yeah, that's exactly right. The so English
1: the, English accent is a plus. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt.
0: <laughs> no, 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 that's right. So those people far outnumber domestic people of color in the academic mm-hmm. world. Now, then you break it down by rank. And that that gets, this is an embarrassment to, it should be an embarrassment to the university. So full professor is the highest rank. Associate professor is is the next uh, highest. And then you start uh, faculty positions. If you start in a tenure track position, and tenure means that you cannot be fired. Uh, Tenure is like the Supreme Court. Once you get in the Supreme Court, you have a job for life. Tenure is like that. Uh, so you have to do something, uh, horrible, you know, like share heroin with your students or something to get fired. Uh, so, so tenure is for life. So tenure is a big, big deal. So mm-hmm. you want a tenure track position, uh, as an aside today, there are more lecturers and adjuncts being hired adjuncts meaning I teach you, I hire you to teach one course at a time. Yes. Uh, so there's not as much power there, but among the tenure track which is the the people who are really running the university, writing, uh, doing the research, publishing the research. So um, uh, um, among Hispanic or Latinx women, we make up 0.4% of all of the faculty. Mm. Black women uh, make up 0.6%. Asian women are a little bit better at 0.7. And our male counterparts are uh, pretty similar to us. So I once described it. I, I gave a talk at the White House once. It's uh, part of a conference on uh, Latinx people. And, and I was trying to describe uh, how, what this was like. And I said, well, imagine a gallon of milk. And, you know, so you imagine this big gallon. So uh, Mexican-Americans, um, Mexican Latinx people, are less than a quarter cup somewhere in that white mixture. Mm. The s- same with African-Americans. Uh, so that continues. Now, I am a psychologist. I'm a social psychologist by training. I also have a, a master's degree in counseling. So I, at one time, I did do some clinical work. But uh, social psychologists study the relationship between the person and the environment. We don't believe that you're born with certain behaviors. we believe that the context shapes your behaviors uh, uh, in, in interaction with with other things that that are, are you're genetically disposed to. So in psychology, this is this is just still unbelievable to me every time I give the statistic. in psychology, about eighty six percent of all people with PhDs in psychology in the United States of America are white. Now, so when people in the audience might be asking, well, why should we care that there's not more people of color in academia? Well, here in psychology is a great example. Uh, I was, with everything happening with the national protests and and COVID, uh, I saw a special not uh, just a few days ago on the lack of mental health for people of color. And so if you're a a black woman who wants to go to a black psychologist, good luck finding one, Uh, especially a licensed PhD, you might find with a master's degree, but you it's almost impossible to find one with a PhD. Uh, I mean, we're, we're few and far between in the United States of America. Uh, So, and we know uh, uh, in psychology that people of color uh, hesitate to go to a therapist. Well, guess why? That We don't have a good reputation. And then when they go, they often don't come back after the first session or maybe the two, second session because they cannot make a connection with the psychologist. And that relationship when you're uh, seeking mental health uh, uh, consultation is important. So that's an example of why it mm-hmm. should matter. And, and if we look at what's happening with uh, with what's happening with police uh, and and the murder of, of black and brown men by police, well, who are these police educated by? If they go to college, they've been educated almost entirely by white men and white women. Mm-hmm. So that means they've they've gotten very little information about people of color and the context in which they work and what they should know about their communities. Uh, so that's an, that's another example. It's like you know they're not they're not getting this information. They're not getting exposure to their implicit biases. They're not getting challenged on their explicit biases and the stereotypes that they carry with them as they're doing their job. So the fact that there are few faculty of color in academia uh, is is an important thing for. Everyone. It's not yeah. just important for faculty, because we are the ones who train the people who are out there and do the service, and 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 then uh, do the creative work. And where uh, the United States is falling, is going to fall. And it already is falling behind, and feels like engineering. Uh, we actually import uh, a vast uh, percentage of our engineering professors now, because we don't have enough in the United States of America to be faculty members. So uh, this the, these stories. So this being one of the only ones uh, leads to uh, uh, what what I call tokenization, and that is uh, being treated like the other, and there are psychological and physical effects to being that person in that token situation. Not only for the person token per- situation, but also for the perceiver, for the majority, uh, and how they how they uh, structure the university. And so a lot of these narratives that we saw in presumed incompetent one, and then uh, into presumed incompetent two, you'll find that most of these women are in situations where they are the only one or one of just a couple and, and there, and then the the consequences, I mean, these interactions that this dynamics of what happens uh, fall on their heads when they arrive. So they arrive at the university as say, uh an expert in neuropsychology. And within a few weeks they're they're seen as as the black woman or the or the Mexican woman in the department, uh the one who does everything related to diversity for everybody in the community and the university. And their scholarship becomes uh, minimized and then they have trouble getting tenure. So uh, that's uh I think these Uh, Let me also say that Presumed Incompetent just came out. It was just released a few weeks ago. We are already uh, getting requests to do Presumed Incompetent 3. Why? Because people are reading these narratives and they're saying, oh, my God, I'm ready to write mine, too. So these narratives, what what we're doing with these narratives is, and what I, I wanted to do with my article, The Making of a Token, was to make visible what is hidden in academia and what is hidden in academia uh, plays out in the functions of our United States society. And so uh,
1: I wanted to add a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, because when I uh, gave the women of color in the academy talk, this is one of the questions that came up. So why presumed incompetent Too you? You and your co-editors already have a volume. Why another? And I wanted to mention that, especially right now, for all those reasons you just said, because we need to enrich and we need to educate. And it's really tiring for professors, for that 1% or 0.4% of professors in the American Academy to be educating everyone who comes to you with questions about cultural diversity. Um, Social justice statistics for professors of color, as you have said, have not improved. They haven't changed much in the last twenty years. We published "Presumed Incompetent" one um, in two thousand thirteen. It, it's still very low. Um, if I could but,
0: interject here, yes, yes. Uh, Let me let me say they have. So, Lyndon Johnson passed the affirmative action bill. Uh, uh, that was in the nineteen sixties. So what I want to say here is the statistics of professors have hard uh, professors of color have hardly budged since the 1960s in terms of percentages.
1: Well, uh, go go well, ahead, Gabriela. Yeah. So the first book, and this is one of my favorite things to say, uh, presumed incompetent, sold like hotcakes, and it is a historical piece. Um, this made it to press. You know, after 250 years of not really addressing these issues, we rang the bell. And in 2013, uh, this volume came out. We changed some lives, but not that many lives. Um, And I I like to say that it was like launching one lifeboat from the Titanic so that there's so many other now... um, Graduate students are writing a book just came out that I reviewed last year, Don't Air the Dirty Laundry, Reflections of Women of Color in Graduate School by Kimberly McGee and Denise Delgado. Um, Yes, people kept asking us for a second volume almost since the first one was published. They wanted more stories. They wanted to identify. They wanted to write. They wanted for the spirit of presumed incompetent because it's really a project. We also have a Facebook page that has an enormous amount of articles about equity and equality that are published by major journals in the United States, uh, newspapers. So they wanted this spirit to not go away from today's world vision. And now with Black Lives Matter, this is so very important because it supports many women into defending and confirming their positions. Um, What happened is that presumed Incompetent One has been used in academia by rank and tenure uh, committees in order to prove that the statistic, and I know that uh, Yolanda is has so many statistics about this, but the evaluations of people of color, of women of color, of working class people um, are so much lower in general. I still have even students of color that come up to me and say, why don't you do things like, you know, the the white woman superstar? And I'm in a women and gender studies department and modern languages as well but they're still comparing me to other people that I should be doing things like the, you know, usually it's a white male professor. Um, But I I think it's so important because one book, as we say in Spanish, uno no es ninguno. One is not enough. It's an entire project, um, and especially because the first book was a book with solutions, and so is this one. It's not just a collection of testimonials, as I said before, but it it, it pioneers many things in the Academy. Um, There have been several other publications since our book came out in the same area, other little boats that came out of the Titanic, right? Um, And I would like to say that um, what's innovative, and both Yolanda and I, Yolanda, you can chime in, but... I think that what's innovative with presumed incompetent too is that we delve deeper into social class. We had touched that. We discuss, um, there's an article by Susie Susie Nam that actually talks about a man of color who passed away um, uh, in her department and as a result of not being treated very well and, and, and nobody really did anything about it. Um. So, uh, these are some of the issues. Go on, Yolanda. Yeah, and so, uh, so
0: uh, presumed incompetent. The original one. One of the things that we had, we were asked to do a lot of talks, and we would ask people, you know, what what did you see in this book? And almost universally, women told us that they found it validating. So we knew it wasn't them; they weren't crazy. It wasn't about them. It was about the system. So they found that very validating. And here we go with presumed incompetent too. And one of the major difference uh, 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 evolutions, if you will, that I see presumed incompetent too, is we see more women fighting back, not just accepting what is happening. Now, when they fight back, they don't always win. But we uh, uh, I think the first book gave people not only the courage to – to air their stories and to, to air this dirty laundry, that like it shouldn't be a secret that we're being treated so badly in academia. Let's, let's talk about it. And, uh, in talking about it, we're teaching each other how to fight back. So we asked all of our authors in both volumes to give recommendations for other women who might be in their situations. What, what would they recommend? And, uh, I'll give you an example of one of uh, a couple of that are fighting back. Um, the uh, one by Penelope Spinoza. So P- Penelope uh, was going up for tenure and uh, she had had nothing but wonderful annual reviews and her department and her colleagues and her chair, hooray, hooray. But so she was told it should be a slam dunk. When it got to the provost and president, she was denied tenure. And it was it was a shock to her. Like, how could this happen? And they told her that she hadn't that she had taken too long to get tenure and hadn't published enough, given that she'd taken extra time. Well, when she looked at at the president's letter, she said, "Well, I don't think she realizes that I I had two babies and I took two years of leave of absence, uh, which is allowed because you're allowed to stop the tenure clock." And so people uh, at, the, at the highest levels were choosing to disregard the fact that she had taken time off, to, that she had stopped the clock per university policy uh, as she became a mother, and she did it two times. So she had to itemize. She had to actually like give the timetable of everything and send it to the provost and president and say, "Would you? Did you notice this?" Because they probably hadn't even bothered to read the file. Uh, (laughs) And and so she ended up getting tenure. But this was after she'd gotten a letter of denial. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one that was that is in this presumed incompetent too uh, is I think it's Tudor. So. This is another kind of discrimination that that we're starting to see. Uh, this woman had transitioned when she was hired. Uh, she was hired with a male identity, and uh, she decide she was deter- deciding whether or not to transition to her core female identity. Uh, uh, as uh, before after tenure and she decided to do it before because she wanted to be real upfront about who she was and again her department and chair her publications were fantastic she was doing everything right extra service wonderful teaching but the administrators did not want to give her tenure and so even though she'd gotten all positive reviews they would not give her tenure now in her case she has actually, yeah, it's Rachel Tudor and it's called unconquered and unconquerable. Uncon- and she's a Chickasaw woman. Um, so she's native American. Uh, so she actually won her lawsuit. Uh, but even though she won her lawsuit, the university refuses to reinstate her. So it, she's been now now almost 10 years without a position because it's hard for her to get hired because she filed a lawsuit. So, uh, but, but, but the step by step that she's going through is going to help empower other people. I've already gotten a phone call from uh, somebody else who's preparing to file a lawsuit because I I also filed a lawsuit against uh, my university. Uh, not for uh, not for tenure. I was a full professor, but for other reasons, uh, having to do with discrimination. But it's a very difficult process. But when we are, uh, these books are, are, I think, helping empower people to fight back. And I have another one that was just released. It's called Disparities in Academia Accounting for the Elephant. And I'm an editor on that book. And that book focuses almost uh, entirely on Black women in the STEM fields. So again, people are talking, they're fighting back, and they're letting other women know how to fight back.
1: And uh, I will, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Christine. Uh-
2: I was just going to say that it sounded like the first book really opened a floodgate, that when you put out the call, you said it was a kind of a small call, and you were surprised by the response. I mean, the floodgate opened wide, and now you you have Presumed Incompetent 2. It just came out recently, and you have a call for people saying, we're ready to write for you for Presumed Incompetent 3, and you've mentioned companion books that others have been inspired to write. And one of the themes I'm also hearing that you all are talking about as you share your stories and those of uh, authors in the book is that there is inherent risk in writing these essays. Yes. In, in talking about these matters. Um, And I wondered how that factored into who could write the essays. I'm thinking of untenured faculty. I'm thinking of adjuncts. Um, And as you've mentioned, um, while it can be extremely important to file a lawsuit against your university, it, it's going to alter how your work environment feels. Um, Did anyone give feedback to you about how their work environment felt or were there people who said, I can't write for you yet. I need to be safe with tenure and then I'll tell you my story. How does the risk factor affect who can speak even as you're opening the floodgates, even as you are supporting people out of their
1: silences? How does that still silence? Well, I have to say that... um the first, uh, Yolanda's first editor for this book, and I was first editor for the first volume. And uh, what, hap- what was most difficult about carrying this on my back was that people kept pulling their papers out. They were being asked to not write by their families, to not publish the piece by their universities. They were being made administrators, um, a lot of fantastic papers had to be pulled out of the first volume. So that's definitely something that happened. Um, I do want to read um, I want to say a couple of things. Um, Dina Gonzalez who is a uh, provost at Gonzaga University uh, and she gave us a foreword for the first book and um, she gave us an afterword for the second book and she talks about how We are. We did not expect, I don't think, Yolanda and I and Carmen Gonzalez, who's uh, also a wonderful speaker. um, We did not expect to be the change agents. But we have become the change agents. Our writings have become the change agents. And I want to read you the quote uh, that's actually a blurb in our book by Mena Pratt-Clark, Vice President for Strategic Affairs and Diversity at Virginia Tech, because I think this quote tells you a lot of what the second volume is about, and she's aware of the first one as well. This work is a powerful call to action and must read for chief diversity officers, deans, department heads, presidents, and provosts. Building on presumed incompetent one, These are courageous and bold testimonies of racism, sexism, and bullying faced by women of color who continue to survive and thrive in spite of it all. The Academy can no longer use the excuse of not knowing or understanding the experiences of women of color. It now has a responsibility to respond, change, and eliminate these unjust and unfair barriers. Reading this work is an important step for those who consider themselves allies, advocates, and leaders who are committed to inclusive excellence. It is also essential for women of color in the academy to know that they are not alone in their experiences and journeys. So I find this, you know, encapsulates, especially the part about it cannot be an excuse anymore. Oh, you don't know that this is happening (laughs) in the 21st century Well, it is, and um, so much, so much more to say. But um, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I I agree. And so, one
0: of the things that happened with uh, the first volume and this one is some of some women contacted us and said, "I cannot publish this, uh, but I need help." So we ended up mentoring uh, women and helping them uh, through the process. Uh, even though they weren't publishing because they didn't know who to go to. And so the, uh, we, we all of us became, uh, our mentorship role increased exponentially uh, because of the people contacting us. And the people who had the most trouble, uh, who felt like, well, certainly the untenured people were at risk uh, for, for publishing, but also administrators. Because when you're an administrator, your job is to, you're expected to support the brand, so you're not supposed to say anything negative while you're in that role about your university, even though, even if you think some bad things are happening or then bad things are happening to you. So the administrators, uh, I ended up talking to two or three administrators, and, and actually there were a couple uh, from this book that uh, one was in the midst of a lawsuit, so we said, well, while you're in the midst of a lawsuit, you really can't publish this right now. So we did a lot of mentoring, but, but you're right. It is a risk. So we are so grateful to these uh, authors, uh, these women who uh, put themselves out there because they, they're, they're take it was, it's one way to take a stand and say, I'm not going to stand still for this. And plus there are women following me and I don't want this to happen to them too. And if I stay silent, this is going to continue. So these, These uh, narratives are very courageous, and each narrative is a a change agent in itself. Uh, And of course, the the entire collection um, makes it even more powerful. But writing this is an act of courage. But I will also say, from having written The Making of a Token, that it is also an act of healing. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that uh, once I left uh, the University of Houston and I went on to Washington State University, Uh, it just stuck with me because I didn't file a lawsuit at the University of Houston, even though I was pretty sure I would win Uh, because it's not only affects you and your career, this affects your family. You know, I had children, I had a husband. I mean, filing a lawsuit affects everybody who cares about you. Yes. Uh, It's it's completely uh, draining. Uh, It's emotionally exhausted and cognitively exhausted.
2: It's a long road that you that you commit to as well. That's that's right. So
1: um, anyway, it marks it marks the rest of your life, um, and you you have to believe in these. You have to believe in these intangible qualities that you are contributing, and that other women of color, that other people of color are also contributing. You also, it's it's also hopeful. I, I like to really underline that a lot of these silent biases that I'm talking about sometimes are people that are really ignorant about what you're contributing and they really don't mean to. I mean, a lot of it has to do with intention and a lot of the people that they're not really, I mean, that's what saves the United States for me. I've lived in a lot of countries. People are not educated about some of these issues. Right. Um, They don't mean to say, oh, you know, you're just working on mariachi stuff. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's an ethnomusicology. It's, it's, you know, it's a historical piece. Um, But they really don't because the whole structure, the entire United States, as we began with Yolanda's story and my story, um, has devalued and invisibilized certain groups, certain people. So um, it's about making people visible again, right? About people believing, affirming who they are and what they contribute to academia in general. Do um, you want to add? If I, yeah.
2: Well, if, I wonder if I can I, I also flagged the Dina Gonzalez uh, quotes and have a number of them. Uh, taped up around my microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the quotes that really struck me in her essay was she said, our histories are not affirmed in the names of buildings or statues on campus. Yes. Um, when you're talking about the, you know, naming the the previously unnamed contributions of women, can you talk about the effect of the previously unnamed psychological damages of the environment being on a campus where the buildings are named for oppressors, where the statues are, well, we have a lot of national conversation going on now about what people um, have been feeling for a long time about statues. Can you talk about some of these other net effects of the campus, not only being academically structured in a certain way, but physically how the structure is impactful? Absolutely. You're speaking (laughs) about context. Mm-hmm. There and the whole, co- so it isn't just what
0: happens in the classroom; it's the entire environment. Uh, so you know what who who's brought up is who's brought up to speak. You know who who are the guest speakers that the university pays tens of thousands of dollars to bring in, and and of course these statues. So the uh, one of the effects of, of this whole context is. It continues to give the message that people who look like you are not valued. And not only are people who look like you are not valued, but by the way, we're going to ask you to honor the people who said that slavery was a good thing and fought for slavery. We're going to ask you to honor the people who said that people who look like you should be slaves uh, so the the whole cumulative sense, and then you talk about the the microaggressions that happen on a regular basis. And uh, by the way, I have a film called Microaggressions in the Classroom. It's free. It's on YouTube. I recommend it uh, uh, again because Gabriela said a lot of people don't even know that they they say things that are so insulting. Uh, but the the whole environment, and then you then you have uh, faculty who. Uh, in, in their fields, in any given discipline, don't say anything about the contributions of people who look like you. And and you look at the TV and, and you look at the, our, our senators and, and our senators, we have very few people who look like us. Uh, the Supreme Court, well, starting to change a little bit, at least with, with women, very few people who look like us. So the people in power don't look like us. And the cumulative effects of all of it and and let me add also, so right now, a lot of uh, our young people, especially, play a lot of video games, and a lot of video games, uh, I've got a, one of my students doing research in this area, uh, again, they almost dehumanize people of color, or they put them in there in very caricature, stereotype-consistent ways. So the cumulative effects of all, all of these messages, uh, and they start when we're very young, are that we don't matter, or that we should be, that the people who matter the most are white people. And as someone who studies stereotypes, I can tell you that by the time kids are about four years old, they know stereotypes of the the biggest demographic groups in the United States, and that's especially true for African-American children. So black children, by the time they're four or five years old, will tell you that white people are prettier, Uh, that white people are smarter uh, and that black people are criminals and drug addicts and good athletes. So they already know the stereotypes. So our children, and and you might think back to the doll study that was done in the 19, I think it's 19 for the Brown versus board of education ruling uh, where uh, the doll studies were, uh, were very critical in that and, uh, the, the researchers showed kids' dolls and which one's prettier, which one's smarter, and the effects uh the black kids consistently chose the white dolls, and the white kids chose the white dolls as his preference. And that has not changed. And it has not changed because of the systemic biases and the systemic structure in the United States of America
1: and in, in academia. And the and- lack of... The lack of attention to all these microaggressions and how they accumulate uh, in this uh, systemic uh, racism in our institutions, the indignities that we go through. When I was in my first year of teaching, I had a master's and a PhD from Stanford, which now I just come out and say that at the beginning, right, the first day of class. Because the student said to me, "Oh, you know, he's from the Midwest." Uh, he said the old, after class, and he was a well-meaning young man. You know, he was 18 years old, and he said to me, "Oh, the only uh, Mexicans I've ever met are the ones that I supervised at the restaurant that he worked at." Right? He said, um, "That's funny that you're." And now I meet you and you're my professor. He said, oh, and then he was thinking about it and prostitutes. (laughs) So these types of things where people are telling us this is who we are and devaluing our contributions, our clothing. I've been asked for my clothing and my jewelry. So uh, someone's, and this is supposed to be a very proactive, liberal person, So um, the wife could wear my clothes um, as a Frida Kahlo outfit, right? For Halloween.
0: (laughs) And so let let, let me add to that, that that it isn't just, uh, so you asked this this is a very important question. What are the cumulative effects? But it's not just effects on the self-concept of people of color and, maybe not just some of us resist that. And then we get angry. So, so, so we know we're in the system that doesn't value us. But to me, it is equally, it's maybe even more important about the effects that, that the message that it gives white people, that they are better, yeah. that they are the people who should be honored. The statues should be of them, that, the that, that things that are taught in the classroom should be about people who look like them. So the message goes both ways. So is it any wonder that they carry these implicit biases whereby uh, they think that white people, you know, are, are, are smarter, that they're more competent. uh, They're more dependable. They're uh, that's who we want around. They're the ones who make good leaders because they've been getting these same messages from the time they were children.
1: Yeah. They're both ways.
2: Mm -hmm. And that, that leads to a, a question that, that kept popping up in my head as I was reading the book, that you know, the professors are staying despite the enormous cost that they're bearing, frankly, to stay, that they should never be asked to bear. In the overriding belief that, that they can contribute to the changes within academia, that they need to stay, and that they talk about the importance of teaching and they talk about the importance of the students. And in the introduction, it talks about, yes, this book is absolutely for the academics, but it's also for the allies and the would-be allies. And I'm thinking that you have a powerful ally base in the students and in the parents of the students. And some of them may be listening today, uh, people who wouldn't normally be able to come to your your lectures because they're, they're part of a different audience. They're the parents who are either have a child in school right now or they're looking ahead, they're planning. Or you have, um, you know, kids who are college age who are going to be first generation are going to be paying their own way. And there are a number of places in the book where it says if you're a woman of color teaching in academia, there's going to be a line out the door of kids needing to talk to you because you're the only yes. person on campus who looks anything like them. Absolutely. How can the parents and the students who are bringing in the money, you know, who are really funding the institution in a lot of ways, and who are selecting the institutions in a lot of ways, how can they ask questions of the administrators to bring about uh, important changes? How can they be part of the allies through their own economic and personal choices?
1: I've thought a lot about this. For example, at my institution in Seattle, um, in the state, there are 13.3% Mexicans, Latinos. And Parents and students can ask, is that reflective in the faculty? I think that's one way of asking, because it's not. Obviously, as Yolanda said, we're (laughs) 0.4, probably a little bit higher in my institution. But nonetheless, at the national level, those are the questions that need to be asked. Um, And who are these classes taught by? Because... You know, anybody can teach about diversity, but what people what happens is that people uh, end up hiring people that look like themselves or have similar experiences. They could be of a different race, but maybe they're the same social class because the students that you talk about, which I've said that many times, that there's a line of students outside my door. There's a line of students that I wish I had a bigger office, Um, but they're white students, too they realize that they're not getting that anywhere else. They're working class, you know, they're poor children of every color, but they're also white, middle and upper class students that realize that what we are going to give them, the knowledge we are imparting is not anywhere else at that institution.
0: So I agree completely with that. Mm -hmm. And also, so what students and parents can do is demand that the faculty look more like uh, the representation of the students, because all students need role models. So that's we need to feed the pipeline. And so we need role models. And by the way, the pipeline is not the reason that the numbers are so low, because we're graduating more PhDs, but they're not being hired. Uh, But I want to say something about the allies. Uh, So I teach psychology of race in the United States at the graduate and undergraduate level. And we talk a lot about allies. But I tell my students that you know, being an ally is not enough. So we talk about the difference between being an ally and an advocate. So an ally, and I want our, our audience to understand this: an ally, we appreciate allies. We appreciate that you're not racist, but it's a very passive stance. Yes. So people say, well, I, I am not a racist. I am not part of the problem, but that's, that's a passive stance. Mm-hmm. And we're glad you're not racist, but it's not enough. So we need people to be active advocates. We need people to speak up when a microaggression happens in their presence and, and and say, you know, I didn't appreciate that. You know, you don't have to be Mexican or black to be offended by that remark. I, 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 I believe in, in, in a good humanity. And mm-hmm. what you said is just absolutely offensive or what you did was offensive. We need people to say things like that and not, not wait for to, the people of color to speak up. We need our white advocates to be in meetings. And, and when, when the, the supervisor says to the person of color in the room, well, this is about diversity, so we'd like for you to handle that. We need our white advocates to say, wait a minute, why should all that be put on Gabriela? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is really a white problem. White people created this. White people ought to fix it. Let's, let's not put the burden on her. Yeah. So we, we need our, uh, our, our white friends, our white colleagues, uh, our white community members to be more than allies. We need them to be advocates.
1: And to educate others, you know, to to set up workshops where you're discussing these issues and educating people. That's something else that also has been done with Presumed Incompetent. Across the nation, I get calls and emails letting me know that the faculty is using our book to discuss a chapter per week. And they meet and, you know, it's it's not formal, but people do attend and they do uh, discuss the issues that came up in that chapter.
2: And I have one more question. We're running short on time, but I was thinking that students want classes on things that are not the traditional canon, that are not covered. They don't They don't see it in the curriculum. They don't know they can ask for it, or they ask, but they're not heard. Can you put on your administrator hat and tell listeners how students can advocate for more representational uh, classes across the board in the lit classes, in the history classes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. How can they advocate for a curriculum to be offering, and not just one time during their, you know, four years at college, but regularly they have offerings to choose from that represent um, the broader depth of what academia can do but isn't putting on the on, on the course catalog?
0: Yes, great question. So students can do this and parents can can unite and do this. So I always tell a student that one voice is lonely. But if you get a group of people in the provost office, and the provost is, is the vice president for academic affairs in the university. If you get a group of uh, students or parents in the provost office or the president's office and say, you know, we want a black studies program. We want a Latinx studies studies. This is an Hispanic serving institution. For instance, uh, my institution just became Hispanic serving. Well, that, that can't just be about numbers. What does that actually mean? How are you actually serving so-called Hispanics? But the other thing that has to happen, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a uh, starting to be a, a little bit of a discussion about this, is this, that every single syllabus and every single discipline has to reflect people who are uh not just the traditional uh dead white men canon. Uh th- not that those are not invaluable, you know, I've read a lot of, a lot of dead white men canon and it's good <laughs> stuff. But uh but it's leaving out uh the people who are are people of color and they uh their voices need to be heard. And that's part of the evolution and development of our society. That's how we get creative. That's how we uh, 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 get innovative. And that's, in fact, a lot of the work on tokenism has been done by in, in the corporate world because the corporate world has discovered that when they have more diversity, uh, their productivity goes up and their ingenuity, especially their ingenuity and their creativity goes up. Uh, so students, so students can do it with their faculty senate. They can do it uh, by organizing groups. They can do it with their uh, uh, the fraternities chairs? and sororities. Uh, the chairs
1: with, of the departments. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: they could. The chairs of departments could get together. They could go to the chairs of the departments, but they can also go to uh, the deans, the provosts, the presidents. Uh, as someone who has been at you know very near the top. Uh, The voices at the top matter, but but they matter uh, because they trickle down. So as senior vice provost, I could say to someone, wait a minute, you need to have more courses in X because there's a line of students waiting to take this only course you've got. Uh, But it has to be the, the demand has to be from the ground up. And the voices have to be strong enough to be heard. And that's why students and parents need to go as a collective, mm-hmm. uh, not, not all of them at once, but, you know, different groups. And, and as administrators keep hearing these messages, uh, administrators want to pay the bills. They need tuition dollars. So they want that reputation as someone who listens and respo- is responsive.
1: But this book also helps you get the language, like they need to have an intersectionally diverse curriculum. They need to learn uh, terms like unconscious bias and silent bias. And um, there was there were a couple other things going on to something else because I, you're saying that our time is running out. I wanted to add that the second volume of Presumed Incompetent uh, raises some issues, some language, it establishes some language in the academy that was not there in 2013, like Robin D'Angelo's white fragility term, for example. And the last two sections of the book, um, bullying, white fragility, and microaggressions, that's section four, um, where we're looking at technology, we're looking at texting and, you know, Facebook, all these social media. uh, Twitter. Twitter. uh, There's a specialist on Twitter (laughs) and social class. Uh, Section five, activism, resistance, and public engagement. Um, This is it for people who are, uh, for whom these Black Uh, lives matter, From for whom all these movements matter, all the changes, because we are not going to come out of COVID-19 in the same way. I have a poem um, in uh, my last uh, collection, uh, which is, this is the moment. So we're going to come out looking at the world in a different place, in a different way, and hopefully things will change and we will all be agents of change, each one of us, not just the academics, full professors. So I just wanted to add that. The other issue that um, we didn't mention in this interview is that, for example, in Presumed Incompetent One, we're also talking about intracultural oppression and social class oppression, um, where, for example, I know the um, Francisca de la Riva chapter Uh, in the first volume, addresses how Chicanos, how Mexicans are treated, um, uh, differential treatment for them as opposed to uh, Latin American, people born in Latin America, and how that affects um, this particular candidate. But anyway, we're addressing uh, social class in many different ways in this volume. So I just wanted to add that.
2: Yes, thank you. I appreciate uh, both of your time today. And we did just touch on the top of this book. We didn't get through all of the layers. There's so much more in it. And there is an opening of the silences. There is naming the problems. It is giving people a language and a framework to start understanding what they've experienced, to how to work to change the system, to how to be an ally. There's tips and concrete tools. In many ways, it's a hopeful book. And I look forward to um, Presumed Incompetent 3 coming out as well. Dr. Yolanda flores Nieman and Dr. Gabriela Gutierrez-Imus, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your book, Presumed Incompetent 2, Race, Class, Power, and Resistance of Women in Academia. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.